Ephesians 3, verses 7 to 9, as we continue our series through the book of Ephesians. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, truly you are worthy of our worship. And even as we gather this morning, I recognize that there are many different burdens on our hearts, many different sins that we have committed. And as we come this morning, Heavenly Father, we come with these burdens, we come with this guilt, and we lay it at the cross of Jesus Christ. Our hope this morning is not in our merit. It's not even in the fact that we are here at church. Our hope this morning is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, Heavenly Father, it is in that hope that we gather, that we proclaim the word of God. And I pray that in this hour you would give me boldness and authority to preach your word with clarity, that your spirit would take these truths of your word and that you would do a work in each and every one of our hearts. Where there is sin, Lord, rooted out, confront us, bring us to repentance, encourage our hearts as we lift high your name. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in the middle of a conversation and you get to the point where you kind of pause and you think to yourself, I have no idea how we got here. It's not that you don't remember starting the conversation, but you have no idea how the conversation has wound its way all the way to the current topic. Often conversations among close friends are this way, are they not? You start sharing stories with each other and, and jokes, and, and before you know it, you start talking about something serious, and, and now you're way over here talking about something completely unrelated. You don't know how you got there. It's easy to get thrown off course in that way. In fact, I had a teacher in high school that was very easily thrown off course. It was very easy to get him to, to chase those rabbit trails, and uh, everyone knew it. In fact, we would come to class specifically with, with questions. Each of us would have questions that we would try to, to ask those questions to purposefully lead this teacher off track. To change the direction of the whole class period. As we come to Ephesians 3, verses 7 to 13, we find ourselves in the middle of kind of a similar situation here in Ephesians 3. It's a rabbit trail, a tangent, if you will, will that Paul has kind of gone off track. If you remember in Ephesians 3, verse 1, he, he starts a prayer, a prayer that he doesn't get to until verse 14 because he gets distracted. He gets distracted as he goes on to defend his calling and to proclaim this gospel, to restate the good news of the mystery of Christ. So we find ourselves in the midst of this tangent. 
So we continue our way through Paul's beautiful tangent here in Ephesians 3. Beautiful, I think, as you will see as we work our way through the passage. And what we'll see this morning is the ministry of Paul, the purpose of the church, and the privilege of the saints. Really what this passage is, is it is a declaration of victory of sorts. And Lord willing, this morning you will be reminded of your confidence, brothers and sisters, your confidence in Christ. And you'll be called to a right perspective in Christ. So first we turn our attention to the ministry of Paul. As seen in verses 7 to 9. Paul's continuing his thought, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. It's clear at the beginning of this verse that we're jumping into the middle of a sentence. Of which? Of which what? Well, that of which goes back to verse 6, really to verses 1 to 6. It is the mystery of Christ, as Paul has explained it here, really explicitly stated in verse 6. This is that mystery of which Paul is writing, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promises in Christ through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. And that is what Paul is focusing on here. It is, it is that message of that that in Christ, even we Gentiles are brought in. That, that even we, who were not only dead in our sins and trespasses, as Ephesians uh, 2 tells us, but we who were far off, we who had no hope in this world, as he goes on to say in Ephesians 2, even we Gentiles have been brought in by the grace of God. Paul's a minister of this message, as he says here in verse 7, of which... I became a minister. This revelation has become Paul's occupation. All of Paul's ministry is about proclaiming this hope in Christ. Paul's ministry is the proclamation, really, of this church-centric gospel message taken specifically to the Gentiles. I have become a minister of this message. And yet notice that Paul is not doing this in his own strength. Not only is Paul's message divine in origin, as we saw last week, it was given to him by revelation. Not only is it divine in origin, but even his proclamation of this message is divine in equipping as well. Paul is not doing this in his own strength. Notice what it says here in verse 7, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Of his power. God is doing this in me. What God has pa called Paul to, here in Ephesians 3, God has uniquely equipped and is uniquely equipping Paul for. God did not call Paul to this ministry and then, and then back off and leave him to do it. And, and hey Paul, I'll see you in 60 years. 
Go do it well. I'll judge you at the end. God has called him. God has equipped him. He is equipping him. He is right there with him. In fact, note here, Paul takes no credit himself. His success in this ministry is a result of the effective working of God's power. The effective working. It's not just working, it is effective. It is accomplishing the very thing that God has sent it out to accomplish. It's important for us to remember, like Paul, as we do the work of the ministry, that we are doing it not in our own strength. Brothers and sisters, do not forget that the gospel message is not your message. It is our privilege to proclaim it. But it's God's message. He is at work. Just as this is not our church, it is his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not because we are such a great church, but because our God is such a great God, and this is his church, and it will succeed. It's the same with the gospel. It's the same with Paul's ministry here. Do you see how this is good news? It is good news that Paul is not on his own to do this. That he's not doing it in his own strength. It is good news that the Lord is effectively equipping him to do this. In fact, even Paul here marvels at what God has done in the gospel. But he also marvels at what God is doing in and through him. Notice what he goes on to say. The effective working of his power, God's work at work in me, equipping me for the ministry that he has called me to. Verse 8. You can almost hear the, the, the shock in Paul's voice. To me. This working of God's power in me. Me who am less than the least of all the saints. Who am I? To be called to the privilege of proclaiming the message of Christ. I love passages like this because it is so relatable. How many of us have not felt at some point ineffective or ill-equipped? In our own strength we feel so small and powerless. But brothers and sisters, you are not called to do this in your own strength. Notice Paul's, Paul's awe here. His awe at God's grace to call him and to equip him. It's an awe that, that many of us have felt. Who am I? In fact, I'm sure knowing our own hearts and minds that many of us would echo what Paul goes on to say, the least of all the saints. I am the most unworthy. This is not the first time that Paul has made a statement like this. In fact, in Romans 7, we find a very 
honest Paul confessing his struggle against the old man. The things I want to do, I do not do. The things I do, I think I don't want to do. Paul's not a proud man. He knows his weakness. He knows just how dependent on the grace of God he is. Again, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul knows his heart. He knows how wicked and undeserving he is. How many of us would not echo the same language that Paul uses here? But I think it's likely that Paul here has in mind something even more. You see, it's, it's not just that Paul knows his heart, he knows his temptation, he knows his struggle against the old man. It, it goes even back to before he was saved. To just how far God has brought Paul, the one who at one point was persecuting the saints. In fact, he goes on, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he has a very similar statement to this where he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. I was an enemy of the church. Who am I to now be an apostle of the church? I tried to silence the message. Who am I to now, by the grace of God, proclaim the message? Brothers and sisters, it is this very radical transformation of Paul's life from Saul in Acts 8, verses 1 to 3, where he not only approves of the murder of Stephen, but he goes on his own little crusade to the Paul that we find here in Ephesians 3, humbled by the grace of God. It is a beautiful testimony to the amazing grace of God. What a transformation. And it is only by the grace of God. Paul here recognizes that it is his undeserved privilege by the undeserved enabling of God to accomplish his undeserved calling to proclaim this undeserved gospel. It is all by grace, brothers and sisters. And Paul sees that. Paul knows that. I am the the least of the saints, and yet look at God's effective working of his power in me. It is to me that this grace was given. What was this grace given to do? What is the ministry that Paul is specifically called to? He's called to the the, the ministry to Saul in verse 6 that was revealed to him that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. What is it that Paul is supposed to do with this message? Verse 8, to me this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles. Paul's ministry is to preach. He has the privilege of preaching to to herald, to proclaim this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not just to preach it, but specifically to preach it to the Gentiles. 
What a privilege Paul has, a unique privilege in history to take this message to fields that are yet untouched. To the Gentiles. You are included. Look at the grace of God, not just to save me, but to offer salvation to you. To call you in. That those who are outside, who had no hope, now have hope. What a message to proclaim. What a privilege to preach it. Even as Paul says in Romans 10, as he quotes Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace. Paul has beautiful feet. Oh, that we would have beautiful feet. That we, by the power of God in us, would take this gospel to the world around us. To see the preaching of this gospel. Not as a duty, but as a privilege by the grace of God. We saw in verse 6 the message that, that Paul is preaching. As a Gentile should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. And it is this Christ that Paul proclaims, as we see here in verse 8. That I should preach among the Gentiles what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable. Limitless. Unable to ever be fully explored or known. Brothers and sisters, it is these unsearchable riches that we will spend an eternity mining the depths of and we will never even come close to fully grasping. These are some of the riches that we've already seen in Ephesians 1 and 2. Some of these riches that are ours in Christ set forth by God in eternity past. It is the beauty of who Jesus is and the endless benefits of knowing him. Some of these unsearchable riches are the power of his blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The unconditional or unlimited nature of his love. The bottomless grace of God in Christ toward us. His unending mercy. His eternal faithfulness. The greatness of his power to save, sustain, keep, and glorify. What a privilege. As Daryl Bach goes on to say, everywhere you turn... The wealth of who Jesus is and what he has done is there to be noted. For Paul, it is a privilege to preach the wonder of God, a deep reservoir of blessing. Paul will never grow tired of preaching these truths because he will never even begin to scratch the surface of the depth of the riches 
of Christ. It is Paul's privilege to preach this hope, to proclaim these mysteries in Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ. But it's also Paul's privilege to teach. You see, he goes on and says, I'm the least of the saints. Grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Paul's called not just to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, but to make all see or to enlighten. The idea here is to, to teach or to bring along Let me tell you, not just what God has done, but let me teach you how God has done it. Notice here, also, that although, Paul's has the, although Paul has the privilege of introducing the Gentiles to this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, his ministry is not limited to that even here in verse 9, to make all see. To make all see. Anyone who will listen. To enlighten them about the, the fellowship, or, or probably better understood as administration of this mystery. The administration of it. To explain how. How has God accomplished this mystery? How has God brought Jew and Gentiles into this one body, the church, to God? It's a mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things in Jesus Christ. The first clue here is that it is not new. It's a mystery that has been hidden since the beginning of the ages. It's important to note that, that the God of salvation here is the God of creation. This is God's plan from eternity past. He has not changed. His plan has not changed. His purpose has not changed. What God is accomplishing in the church has always been God's purpose and plan. He's doing an amazing work. In fact, he'll go on a little bit later in verse 11a, according to the eternal purpose, once again noting that this has been God's plan from eternity past. The church is the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. In fact, looking back, we may not have, have seen what God was doing. But in hindsight, the evidence of God's perfect wisdom and sovereign plan, we see it being unfolded. As we look back to Genesis 12 and the promise that Abraham in you, all the nations will be blessed. Blessed. 
In fact, Galatians 3.8, we just looked at this in, in his class with the kids this morning. I was downstairs in, in one of the Sunday school classes. And Galatians 3.8 says this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, the scripture foresaw this, and therefore preached the gospel all the way back to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. All the way back then, God knew what he was doing. He was moving all the little pieces into place, accomplishing his purpose, generation after generation after generation, to his glory. This might be new from our perspective. But it is the work of a good and powerful, and even as we will see in just a second, wise God accomplishing the plans and the purposes that he set out to accomplish. Praise the Lord this morning for an eternally powerful and wise God. We don't know what God is doing, but we don't have to know what God is doing. We just have to know who he is and to submit to him in faith. How has God done this? God has been doing this. He's been accomplishing this throughout history. Bringing this about. So Paul has the privilege of pointing out what God has done. He has the privilege of explaining how God has done it, looking through history at how all Scripture kind of comes together leading to this, God's plan and purpose. But Paul also has the privilege of revealing why God has done this. And that's what we see in Ephesians 3, verses 10 to 11, the purpose of the church. Why has God done this? Why has God brought together Jew and Gentile, uniting them in Christ to God for his glory? Why has God done this? to the intent, to this purpose, with this goal, that now, all right, again, note there, now the perfect timing of God, this has been not known, it's been hidden, but now, in God's perfect timing, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The manifold wisdom of God the idea of manifold is the many-sided, the many-sided wisdom of God. So far above or beyond what we could even begin to comprehend. It is the plan of God coming together perfectly for the glory of God. By way of illustration, think of the many different people it takes to build a house. It takes architects and plumbers and electricians and, and framers. You need people skilled in carpentry and concrete work. You, mean those, you need those who are strong and you need those who are wise and detail-oriented. And I'm sure there's millions of, many things in between there that I've left out. 
And if one man built the entire house from ground up by himself, it would really be an amazing testimony to his skill in many different areas. And that's somewhat of the idea here. As we look at God's plan of salvation brought together in the church, we marvel that God has done this. Look at God's work and the details, working this through history, bringing it all together in his perfect timing now. Truly, it is marvelous. It is a testimony to his wisdom and his power. And perhaps the most shocking part of this entire passage is that the manifold wisdom of God is not made known to the church, but it is made known by the church. By the church. Brothers and sisters, the mere existence of the church, this beautiful gathering of Jews and Gentiles in Christ, is a testimony to the wisdom of God. By the church. Two the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's a shocking statement. If you sit back and you think about what that is saying, that the mere existence of the church testifies not just to the world about the wisdom of God, it testifies to angels, to demons, to the devil, to principalities and powers that we don't even know or understand. It testifies to them even of the wisdom of God. How can that be? You see, the cross and the empty tomb were death blows to sin and death. In fact, Luke 15.10 tells us, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They are watching. They see that. They rejoice. But this passage takes it a step further. Not only the the cross and the empty tomb, the gospel that a holy God would save sinners, but in the reality that he would take those sinners and unite them together in this organism, the church, for the glory of God, that has a testimony as well. You see, the church is a decisive step in victory in God's plan. What God has done in the cross, the church is a step forward. It displays the wisdom of God in her mere existence, and she proclaims the wisdom of God in the gospel. In fact, in Ephesians 1, verses 9 to 10, we are told that God is bringing all things together in Christ. And the church is a mere foretaste. It is a first step in that. The God who has brought Jew and Gentile together, that has united them together in this church, uniting them, bringing peace with God, 
He's the same God who will go on to unite all things in Christ to his glory. The principalities and the powers in heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, what we are doing here is we gather as the church is bigger than any of us can even begin to comprehend. We are testifying not just to the world around us. We are testifying to the devil, to the demons, to the principalities and powers, to the angels all around us. Look at the wisdom and the power and the goodness and the greatness and the mercy and the grace and the justice and the glorious nature. Look at our God. We proclaim God's victory. To the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purposes. Remember, we just looked at that. The eternal purposes. This has been God's plan all along leading to this point for this purpose to proclaim this. which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What God promised, God has accomplished. God does what he says. He's a faithful God. It is not still to be accomplished. It is done. And brothers and sisters, that means that our hope is secure. Praise the Lord that the church proclaims a message of victory. In fact, that's where Paul goes next to look at the privilege of the saints. It is his privilege to proclaim this mystery. The unsearchable riches of Christ that is the church's purpose to also proclaim, to stand out as a testimony to the wisdom and the greatness of God, and it is the privilege of the saints to participate. Even as we see in verse 12. In this Jesus Christ who has accomplished all of God's purposes, in whom we, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. This is language that we are very familiar with. We just worked our way through the book of Hebrews. This idea of, of access, of um, boldness. And that's what Paul is going on here to say. Brothers and sisters, you have boldness and access with confidence. The good news to the Gentiles is that in Christ you belong. I think I touched on this illustration in our series through Hebrews. But the idea here of belonging, you have boldness, you come confidently because you belong. Think of the, the boldness of walking into your own house. You don't hesitate before you open the door, you don't knock on the door. You go in. It's your house. You belong there. So you go confidently across that threshold. Boldly. Brothers and sisters, you belong. 
In Christ, you belong. So don't be hesitant. Don't be shy. Go forth boldly in Christ. You belong to the family of God. You are not second-class citizens. What boldness and access, what privilege is ours in Christ. Live in that reality. And notice the, the means of our confidence. How can this be? In whom? In Christ. Not in ourselves, not in anything that we have done. In him we have boldness and access with confidence. How? Through our church attendance. Through the good works that we have done that one day will outweigh our bad works. Through our baptism. Through our participation in communion. Is that what the passage says? What does it say? Say it with me. Through faith in him. Through faith. We are in Christ because Christ has done all. There is nothing that we can add to it. All of this is ours in Christ. That is why it is the unsearchable riches of Christ. The amazing grace of God. It's a gift. Free to all who merely believe. In fact, if you are here this morning and you're trusting in your own works, if you're here this morning and you're looking back to a, a baptism a long time ago saying, I know that I'm going to heaven because I was baptized. Brothers and sisters, if you're here and that's what you are saying, let me be brutally honest with you. Your hope is empty. That is not what saves it is faith alone and Christ alone that saves. Lay down your works and place your faith in Christ alone. We have confidence not in us, but by faith in him. Therefore, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation. The therefore there kind of connects this verse to the, the last, really, 12 verses. Understanding this changes how we approach life. Understanding who you are in Christ, even as a Gentile, that God has done this for you in Christ and invited you in. Understanding that changes everything. It changes your perspective on suffering. It changes the things that you live for, the things that you value. In fact, the beauty and power of what God is doing and my privilege to participate in it gives purpose to everything that I go through. It opens my eyes to the big picture of what God is doing. There is so much more at stake than my comforts. 
They're so much more than my desires. What Paul is saying here is don't, don't be troubled at my tribulation. I am even in jail as I'm writing this. And yet I am in jail as a child of God. They cannot chain my hope. They cannot hold back my message. I am here because this is where my sovereign God wants me. Every pain, every suffering, everything that hurts, everything that you do not understand is given purpose in Christ. I can endure because in Christ I belong. I can endure because my hope is sure. I can endure because all things work together for the good of those who are in Christ. I can endure. It is this big picture, eternal perspective that emboldens the saints and gives purpose and meaning to even the most mundane tasks of life. I have a bigger purpose. A bigger calling, a great privilege. So Paul writes to them, therefore, because of this truth, because of this big picture truth that God has done all of this, don't, don't mourn for me. I may be in jail, but rejoice at what God is doing. Because even this is for your glory. I am, I am willing to suffer so that you seeing me suffer and seeing me stand strong will encourage your faith. Maybe that's what God is doing here. I am willing to walk through this valley of the shadow of death and to do it boldly in Christ so that your faith can be encouraged. I will gladly suffer for one more opportunity to preach. For one more soul to hear. If Paul's hope, even in the midst of suffering, can strengthen even one weak brother, then for Paul it is worth it for the cause of Christ. The good news of the unsearchable riches of Christ gives meaning and purpose to even Paul's suffering. So brothers and sisters, as we come to the end of this passage this morning, a couple points of application. Number one, see the unsearchable riches of Christ. See what God has done for you in Christ this morning and rejoice. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ alone, then I would invite you, even as we are, have a closing song here in just a second, come to the front. Seek me out, and I would love nothing more than to take you aside to open the word of God and to answer any questions that you may have to point you to Jesus Christ. Secondly, brothers and sisters, this morning, won't you see the great importance of the church and marvel at the wisdom and power of God? 
What this passage tells us is that as the church gathers, the powers of darkness tremble. The church gathering is not merely a once a week social gathering. It is a coming together of the saints in Christ. It is a declaration of victory. It is a sign of our sure hope. And I would submit to you that this is true. That there is nothing else that you will do this week that is more important than your gathering with and your participation in the church. And maybe you feel that that's an overstatement this morning. But I would submit to you that it is right on. As those who are in Christ at this point in time, the church should be central in your life. Don't build your week around football games. Don't build your week around work. Brothers and sisters who are in Christ, build your week around the church. Value the church. Gather with the church. Participate in the church. Serve the church. Because God values the church. And because the devil and his armies fear the church. Even as we gather, we are proclaiming. Just the mere gathering is the proclamation of victory in Christ. So I'd ask you this morning, do you value the church or do you merely fit it into your schedule? Do you value the church or do you merely go through the motions because that's what you've been doing for 40 years? Do you take time to meditate on what it is that you are doing, what it is that you are proclaiming as you gather? Value the church. See the great purpose and privilege of the church. And then finally, remember who you are in Christ, the access and the boldness that you have. Come boldly because you belong. Come boldly in fear, in prayer, come boldly in faith. Stand fast. You belong in Christ. So rejoice in your circumstances with the perspective of eternity. You may not understand what God is doing, but you know what God is doing ultimately. So rest in that hope and let it give purpose to whatever uncertainty or confusion you may find yourself in today. You belong in Christ. So come boldly with confidence and rejoice.